Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Wednesday, August 24th, and this is the Eye on College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander with me in our uh, Candid Coaches series at CBSSports.com. Continues to hum along. Yesterday's question uh, was especially interesting, I thought. And I want to start with that because the answers, particularly the, the stories that went with the answers, were incredible and also troubling. The question was this, if you missed it over at CBSSports.com. We asked more than 100 college coaches, some white, some black, if they've ever had an uncomfortable or inappropriate encounter with a member of law enforcement. And 68% of the black coaches said yes. Only 12% of the white coaches said yes. And almost half of the white coaches who said yes, so, so half of the 12%, uh, said the only bad experiences they've had uh, came when they were in a vehicle with a black person. The disparity in those numbers is is staggering, and 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 yet also, like I said, uh, unsurprising. The question obviously was prompted by the larger conversation this nation is having about how police treat minorities and uh, cell phone videos of, of police killing black men for for seemingly, in some cases, no good reason, uh, have have raised awareness on the topic. And and one thing we've consistently heard over the past year or two. Uh, from the black community is that uh, the mistreatment that we're seeing isn't new. Uh, the only thing that's new are the cell phone cameras and the videos that we're watching. But uh, the scenes that we're watching, there's nothing new about those. They might surprise um, a large percentage of, of white America, but they don't surprise uh, the black community uh, at all. And uh, the answers that we got to our question, I think, uh, overwhelmingly confirm that. Norlando, what, what's the the craziest story you heard? The one story uh, when you were talking to a black coach where you went, whoa, that's incredible. Um, there are a few here, GP. Uh, I guess, well, I'll, I'll say this. Like, for example, one story that I, I kind of relayed in the, in the post, but I didn't directly quote the coach because he it was kind of a long diatribe. But if this coach were to say what he told me with the same demeanor, passion, facial expressions for any reason at a press conference or publicly with the camera in front of him, it would it would have been one of the sound bites of the year, regardless of it being you know a college basketball coach in the offseason. If there would have been any reason for a coach to have said that in a public manner, it was it was extremely. Um, uh, passionate and and I didn't even quite know what to say and it was the coach that was explaining to me how he was pulled over uh, and he's married to a white woman mm-hmm. and the situation with the police officer uh, got really weird and unnecessary and uncomfortable in a hurry I mean I've never heard of this ever happening but it basically got to a point where the police officer asked the coach to step out of the car um, you know, patted him down, then asked the coach, this was for just a, a general traffic stop, mind you, asked the coach to go and sit in the police cruiser, the passenger seat, with his hands on his legs, uh, and just sit and wait. And they sat, he sat there for 10 to 15 minutes, wasn't sure what was happening, what was going to happen. He hadn't done anything wrong. And eventually the police officer did let that coach go, uh, but um, – he was just utterly dumbfounded, even in a situation like that. I mean, I've never heard of something like that happening. So that was one that stood out. And then the one that I tagged um, the story with was this other coach 
who grew up with a father who was a police officer uh, in Chicago. And by all accounts, he was saying his dad was just absolutely tremendous. And he kind of spoke to the other side of this issue, which, which is so many police officers do such great work. I mean, me personally, I know I have friends, five or six of them, that are police officers here in Connecticut, in New York City, all over the place. And um, But he spoke to that, and then at the same time, here's the son of a police officer who was um, a pretty well-known and talented high school basketball player at the time. And this is about, uh, it's not even two decades ago that this has happened. And it's, so it's a, a relatively younger coach, you could say. And um, he basically was... Uh, publicly embarrassed, had guns drawn on him, uh, had a cop jump him, uh, accusing him of being a suspect. Um, and it got to the point where there were like 100 people outside of his high school uh, screaming at this cop that they had the wrong guy. And the cop insisted he had the right guy. And eventually uh, the situation was uh, cleared up and uh, the coach was let go. At the time, he obviously wasn't a coach. But um, to me, it perfectly encapsulated how uh, these situations can kind of get really ridiculous in a hurry. And that's, and by the way, like I want to acknowledge that like we did this question because coaches, at least with me, I, I mean, I had three or four black coaches unprompted just kind of see like, can you believe what's happening in Dallas? And then that would go to talk about what happened with Alton Sterling uh, and the man that was killed in Minnesota. So this was something on the minds of coaches. Mm -hmm. And w from that is when I was kind of sparked, like, you know what? There's enough here that I think we should and can ask this question. And, um, yeah, it's uh, basically 70%. Um, I, I Honestly, I could spend 30 minutes relaying all the stories I got. It was uh, – honestly, it's disturbing. I mean, you got some – you got – you, we have well-known coaches sure. that are quoted in, in this piece, men who should be fairly well-known in their communities that have, have dealt with this kind of stuff. And so it is a legitimate, real issue, and it's one that I even got the sense some of the coaches would not have even had an issue putting their name to some of these quotes. Some of them would have because it can have – it's not exactly something that you – like a lot of coaches, they were just like, this is – you know, I'll tell you, man, but I – I kind of hate having to tell you what I went through. So um, it's something that they experience and go through, and it highlights an issue that's ongoing. But I do want to repeat that, you know, most cops are good cops. And we had black coaches say, you know what, I've been pulled over four or five times, maybe a couple times it was BS, but I've never had a negative association with a police officer. So I've been fine, but I know that the issues are out there. So we, I feel that the, the story kind of covers all the angles there while rightfully highlighting how amazing it is that 70% of the black coaches we pulled, and we pulled about 50 of them, had an issue. Meanwhile, you could really boil it down to 5% of the white coaches right. have had an issue with police officers. And that's, you know, that's not, um, I don't think that's misleading information. Well, some, uh, a guy tweeted at us yesterday after we tweeted the column, and he said, um, you know, I don't think cops are, and, and keep in mind, just for the sake of the conversation as we go forward, when we say cops, we don't mean all cops, right? I, like, I, I don't want to have to say every time you saw them, but like, I think sometimes when, when we get into these conversations, people think we're painting with a broad brush. Quite clearly, the overwhelming majority of police officers in this country, uh, I think, I assume, I hope, are good people trying to do good things. Um, it's just that um, we do have this, this issue uh, that has been you know, brought to the forefront of a, of a national uh, conversation. And we had this one guy yesterday tweeted us, I think he tagged you in the tweet as well. He said, you know, I don't think um, cops are racist. 
I just think some of them are jerks. And like, I, I, I guess, you know, but like the, the, on the jerk part at least, but like just being a jerk cop doesn't explain the disparity in the answers from black coaches to white coaches. Or really, like this is just a, a, a reflection of, of the general population in general. We just tied it to our candid coaches series, so we only ask coaches. But if you talk to white people and black people in general, these are the types of answers you would get. The overwhelming majority of black men would say, of course I've had an issue. The overwhelming majority of white men would say, absolutely, I, I've never had an issue. Just me personally, I've never been pulled over for no reason. I, I cannot think of a time where I was pulled over for no reason. Jeff Hawkins and I were getting into uh, a conversation about this several weeks ago on my radio show. He, of course, is the uh, columnist at the Commercial Appeal newspaper in Memphis. And he and I both were like, because I asked him, I said, you ever been pulled over for no reason? Like, I, I've been pulled over often, but it's always for, like, speeding or, you know, d running a red light or doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing, having an expired tag. And he was like, no, I've never been pulled over for no reason. I was like, I've never been pulled over for no reason. And uh, suddenly, like, a stream of African-American men started tweeting at us. They were like, I've been pulled over 50 times for no reason. I will tell you this. I live in a predominantly white community, and... Uh, when I'm driving around and I see a cop with somebody with somebody pulled over, it is typically an African American. I'd say three out of four cars I see pulled over, it's an African American, and and this is in a predominantly white community. So like, it shouldn't be that way. Like you know, just the numbers suggest the people violating traffic laws, it sh it should be pulled over. Uh, you know, it probably should be 80% white people pulled over, 90% white people pulled over. But it's not. It with my own eyes, I see it to be. Uh, different than that beyond that I've never had a bad experience with police officers there was one time where and I don't want to get into too long of a story but I had a cap gun in my car it was a toy it was a cap gun I don't even know why I had it I was like early 20s I had a cap gun in my car it was sitting in the passenger seat I got pulled over for running a stop sign or a red light or something and the cops actually like pulled me out of the car and I was startled and scared because I hadn't done anything wrong but like they you know I can sort of rationalize their behavior because they saw what appeared to be a right. gun lying in the passenger seat. So they let me go and whatever. But that's the only time I've ever even been out of, a, of my car. I've never even been asked to get out of my car. And I say all that to say this. I talked to uh, several uh, coaches, and they all had stories. In fact, one guy, an African-American coach, he said, he said, I bet you can't find a black coach to, to tell you he hasn't had a bad experience. And if he does, he's lying to you. Now, obviously, that's not what our poll numbers showed, but um, – that, like the answers I got were like, of course, I'm a black man. Of course, I've had an inappropriate uh, uh, encounter with a law enforcement official. But one guy told me when he was an assistant uh, coach, not at the school he works at now, he got pulled over. He's on the road recruiting. He was in Illinois, but about two hours outside of St. Louis. And he gets pulled over for no reason. He says, I've done nothing wrong. And it was interesting because this guy, um, when I asked the question, I asked it on text message, and he answered he just said yes and just left it at that. And I wasn't going to like uh, – maybe I was going to hit him back later and say, hey, can you ex – what's your story? Can I hear it? Do you, you mind sharing it? But I had people at the house, and I didn't get back to him immediately. So before I got back to him, he actually got back to me, and he said, hey, I didn't have time to, to expand on my yes answer, but if – you know, I, I'd like to if you don't mind. So I said, of course, and he tells this story. Says he's in Illinois, about two hours outside of St. Louis, and he gets pulled over for what he says is no reason. He said they walk up to the car. And they tell him, uh, you change lanes without using a blinker, which he said is completely untrue, but whatever. He said, officer, that didn't happen, but, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. They then run his license, and they say, your license is suspended. Get out of the car.
they handcuff him. His license is not suspended. All right? So it's just like if you want to give them the benefit of the doubt, they got a, a bad reading on it or however you properly say that. Um, but he doesn't think that's the case. They just said your license is suspended. They put him in the back of a police car handcuffed. Keep in mind, to this moment, he's done nothing wrong. They accuse him of being under the influence of drugs, which he says not only wasn't true then, it's never been true. He says, I've never used drugs in my life. Not when I was in high school, not when I was in college, not last week, certainly not on that night. I've never used drugs. Literally every day of my life, I've been able to pass a drug test. But they, they're, they're, uh, they say he's under the influence of something, and they want to search his car. He's just trying to get out of this. So he's like, just search the car, whatever, because he knows there's nothing in the car. They find nothing in the car. Still, they take him to jail. They put him in a cell. All right. He's at a, it, and this is like before um, everybody had GPSs, everybody had cell phones. So like he, he doesn't know what to do. He's, he doesn't know who to call. This whole time he's sitting in the back of the cop car. He, doesn't, he can't call anybody. He doesn't know, nobody, like nobody on the planet knows what he's going through right now. So they put him in jail, hold him there for like three to four hours, and then they let him go eventually because there's not like he didn't do anything. But they let him go with no explanation, no apology. Oh, his car was impounded, so he had no car. So he leaves the police station, and this is like small town Illinois, so you can't just like get a cab. He has no phone. So he, has, he walks to a hotel, checks in, stays the night there, gets up the next morning, goes and gets his car out of impound, and, like, and then continues on his recruiting trip. But, like, didn't do anything. Nothing. And that was an extreme version. But, like, everybody had one. I talked to a Power 5 head coach who said he had an encounter because his wife was driving a university-issued car, the way all Power Conference, really all coaches have. You know, they're going to have a car that's, you know, uh, provided to them by the university. So his wife, you know, also had one, part of his contract. And he, and she gets pulled over. He's with her. He's in the passenger seat. Um, she doesn't have the proper paperwork. The car has dealer tags on it because it belongs to a car dealership, and they're harassing her. He's trying to explain, this is our car. You know, we get it from an auto dealer. It's part of my job. It's a company car. Because he's trying not to drop the you, do you know who I am thing. He's the head basketball coach at a Power 5 school in his college town. And the cops are still, like he said, the cop, in, like he looks over and the cop's got his hand on the gun like just ready to pull it out. And he's like, what in the world? And the point he was trying to make was like, this happened to me and I'm an adult college educated man. I'm not like some kid in the streets. I'm the head. I'm a multi. He didn't say this, but this is what he meant. I'm a multimillionaire, college educated head basketball coach at a major university in my university city. Still happened to me. Still happened to my wife. And one after another, um, these stories, you know, come off the table and, you know, I'll go back to the, the time we were talking about on radio. I had a, a buddy of mine who is an African-American man, um, you know, college educated wife, two kids, lives in the suburbs. Like he's not, um, you know, he, he's not in the in he's not in. And he was like, yeah, all the time get pulled over just for driving in my neighborhood. Like the cops don't like don't they they have a hard time believing I belong in my neighborhood. And you just hear these stories and it's just. Uh, you know, again, I think most cops are good cops, but like we clearly have a problem in this country and I, I don't, I don't, I'm glad that it's now being addressed. I don't know how it gets fixed. I think body cameras are probably one obvious, uh, helpful thing. 
but it is it was it's disturbing to hear these stories. I think we know it goes on, but when you hear men, you know, not just not just people you see who you don't know on video on you know the evening news, but you hear men that that we know, guys who work in the profession that we cover, and almost without exception, they have a similar story. It's it really is disturbing. Yeah, um, I'll wrap up my end of this question just by adding that. Uh, you know, I had two coaches tell me they had incidents this summer as recently as within the past six weeks while on the road. Uh, one of them in Las Vegas in the middle of the day. Uh, had another coach tell me he was thrown on the hood of his car at 3 a.m. Uh, while, you know, going from one city to another uh, while recruiting. I actually asked that coach to tell me more about that story. And he said, I'd really rather not. But it did happen. Um, and that happened with a couple of coaches where they just were like, Dude, it, I'm just telling you it happened, but uh, I'd rather not go into it. Um, so this is, you know, something that's currently happening uh, with head coaches. Certainly talk with uh, a number of assistants as well. And even to the point where one coach told me, he told me this in Vegas while we were sitting at an event. But when he was in Georgia two weeks before at the Peach Jam, he was on the phone with his wife, like walking out of the uh, Riverview Park Activity Center or whatever, just calling her. Being like, hey, babe, just checking in. You know, events are done. I'm going to go get my bag, leave the hotel, and then I'm going to drive up to Spartanburg tonight so I can be there for this event in the morning. And uh, his wife was like, are you crazy right now? Like, I'm asking you not to drive more than two hours in the middle of the night in the south as a black man. Just yeah. wait it out, sleep, sleep in Augusta, leave in the morning when it's daylight. And he wound up doing it. Um, but it's kind of sad that um that his wife would even have to ask him to yeah. do something like that but that is the reality of it so and i will uh, say just in in defense of the south and i'm not going to be the guy that defends the south because like i live here i know that racism is still very much alive um but like these issues that we've had they haven't been unique to the south no doubt about it you know it's it's been uh it's been baltimore it's been new york city it's been minneapolis um it has also been baton rouge but um, it hasn't been you like it is. It seems to be a coast to coast, north and south problem. Yes, I was quoting his wife. No, I understand. You know, when I was saying that. But yeah, no, that's uh, and most of these questions we do, we kind of we, we ask the question, we give the results and we kind of have a uh, spinoff or takeaway. Sometimes maybe just like a guess or a solution. There is no necessarily a solution to this. This was just something that was clearly a national conversation happening parallel to the live recruiting period. And it was something coaches were talking about. So for people that might resist this kind of stuff, I'm sorry, but it is absolutely something that uh, a good portion of the college basketball community is dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And by the way, a number of coaches told me that all these incidents that happened over the summer have actually prompted them to sit down with their teams and their guys to an even uh, more detailed extent in terms of how to deal with police in every kind of possible manner so there is actually uh, an impact on, you know, an actual basketball level with these players as well. Well, I, and I think that it's an important to note that um, and one of the reasons I think I hope this registers with maybe people and by people, I mean, white people who have rejected sort of this premise that there is um, a disparity in the way whites and, and minorities are treated by uh, police um, is that, you know, when Freddie Gray happens, or the Baton Rouge story happens, or the you know the Minneapolis story happens. Um, almost immediately, 
you know, we start hearing about criminal records. We're all like, you know, this guy was a drug dealer and this guy had been arrested five times for this. And this guy had been arrested seven times for that. And uh, does it make it okay? Like, just because you've done something wrong in your past doesn't mean you deserve to be shot for no reason on video. I don't know why that's so hard for some people to grasp. But either way, um, the character of the victims tends to become a a big part of the conversation uh, with the implication almost being, well, you know, like, you know, if they didn't put themselves in that situation. uh, My point being, the men we talked to, more than 50 black men, they're not criminals. They're not people with, with, you know, bad stuff in their background. These are highly successful members of society, like in, in like uh, college graduates, people who have worked to the very top of their profession, um, men with families, like, uh, you know, and, and they've got the same stories, the exact same stories as the guys that, that so often people try to go, yeah, but, you know, he was running in the streets and he was a, uh, you know, uh, once upon a time, rob stuff from a gas station. Like the, these guys that we're talking to, they, they have the same stories as those guys, um, but they don't have the same backgrounds. And, and I, I guess my point being, um, this happens to everybody. It's not unique to inner city Philadelphia, inner city Chicago. Um, it, it happens to, to um, you know, and it's not unique to, to young black men who, you know, might be running in the streets. Like seemingly all black men have a story. And like I even talked to one guy and I I don't want to get too specific, but he played in the NBA. He's a college coach now played in the NBA. He said he got pulled out of his car in the city where he played and was made him and his boys were made to sit on the curb for like 45 minutes while the cops were just looking for anything to pin on them. And he was an NBA player. And I was like, so why did they pull you over? He's like, because I had a nice car. You know, like, I, I, I don't know. And, and they were looking for anything. Like, he, he asked me, he said, when, when have you, when's the last time you were asked to get out of your car and sit on a curb? Never. It's never happened to me. Has it ever happened to you? Nope. Right. Never ha- happened to him? You know, for what? For what reason? I said, what'd you do? Nothing. Didn't do anything. Just, you know, I was young and black and rich. Young and black and had a nice car. So that, you know, so I must have been up to something. Must have been a drug dealer. And uh, I I hope that if there's even one person out there who's sort of rejected, um, you know, this conversation in the past, I hope perhaps this is uh, wins somebody over, because uh, I do think it's an incredibly important topic of conversation in this country and and something that, uh, again, I don't know that it'll ever be a perfect system, but uh, God, it should be better than it is. Uh, uh, Let's leave it at that. Um, Today's candid coach's question is one that we've, you know, done in the past and has has uh, typically uh, provided uh, great results in the sense that, you know, I, I think you pointed out in, in, in the column because you handled this one as well. Like when we asked this question a couple of years ago, the answers were Billy Donovan and Fred Hoiberg. Which college coach is best equipped, most likely headed to the NBA next? The answers we got were Billy Donovan and Fred Hoiberg. And guess where they are now? Oklahoma City and Chicago. And so we asked that question again, which college coach is best equipped and most likely to next jump to the NBA? Who was the number one answer? Uh, Well, before I give it in about 15 seconds, is the number one answer the guy that you would have guessed would have been the number one answer? Like going in, did you think the guy that's number one? My answer would have been, if I were guessing who's the next guy to jump to the NBA, right now I would guess... I would have three answers. I would guess Kevin Ollie. 
I would guess Jay Wright, and I would guess Tony Bennett. Yeah. Kevin Ollie won uh, by a narrow margin, but he did win. Um, going in, I would have guessed Cal would have won it, um, but he didn't. So Ollie won uh, barely, and then you've got Jay Wright, uh, Calipari, and Bill Self were the top four vote-getters. Um, Tony Bennett, Shaka Smart, round out the top six, and then the only other three coaches that got at least three votes were Sean Miller, uh, Larry Kraskoviak at Utah and Avery Johnson, who obviously already has NBA experience. Ollie, to me, is the right pick in that I think he is uh, equipped and most likely to be the first to go. Uh, he has deep NBA ties. He was a journeyman player in the NBA for well over a decade. He's got guys that like Kevin Durant, who he was a teammate to, who tr uh, respect him tremendously and it's uh, it's no secret in the business that Ollie definitely wants a chance to coach at the NBA level uh, as soon as he can get that opportunity. It's just a matter of will he get it? What, will the will the situation be right? And how good will UConn be next year, the season after, or whatever? So Ollie wins it. Um, as I write in the in the piece, to me, it's Bennett or Wright that would be the best fit right now, given their demeanor. Uh, Bennett played in the NBA like Ollie did. Jay Wright is, you know, uh, just a consummate professional. Um, he now has a national title to his name at Villanova. He's forever a legend there. Still young enough. Uh, Bennett's 47. Wright is 52, I think. Um, so both of those guys, I think, would be really good candidates. And I and I wrote that. Listen, we don't get a, a college coach going every year to the NBA, but it happens on occasion. And in the past 25 years, we've had. 10 or 11. I lay out the records for all those guys. It's actually not, they're well under, if you take every coach that's gone from college to the pros, uh, their collective record is well under 500. And I don't believe one of them has won a playoff series yet. Now that should change. No, sorry. Donovan's won. Um, uh, that should change beyond one with Stevens. You got to think Brad Stevens will have more success going forward. Um, we'll see. What well, they'll, they'll probably be picked second in the East next season. Yeah, they're they're going to have a really good chance of being a, a really really good team. I mean, Stevens is clearly on his way, and it's uh, to me it's reached a point where um, I, I I don't see Brad Stevens ever going back to college. To be honest with you, uh, but so I do think that of the list, if you look at the names, I think the coaching fraternity knows what it's talking about, and I think by 2020, at least two of the nine names you see listed that received uh, multiple votes will be coaching in the NBA or at least have had a shot at it. Well, uh, a couple points here. One, uh, the record of below 500 for guys who have jumped from college to the pros, I think that says way more about the jobs they took than it does. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah, than their ability to actually coach at that level. What we found out consistently um, with NBA coaches is this. Um, if you've got a roster that's built to win, you're probably going to win with it. If you've got a roster that's not, it's impossible to win with it. Uh, my favorite example of that is Larry Brown. Inside of a two-year period, he had the best team in the world and the worst team in the world. You know, he had the, he had the Pistons World Championship, right. and then he had the Knicks, um, which were awful. Now, what changed with Larry Brown in those two years? Not nothing. He just he went from having a great roster to a bad roster. Um, and so, like, and Larry Brown is like on the short list of guys who, you know, if you ask who's the best basketball coach to ever live, like Larry Brown's going to get some votes for that. Um, he's won a college championship. He's won an NBA championship. Uh, and, and so, like, if he can be, if he can have the worst team in the league, like, what does that 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 tells you that um, 
you better have the players in that league or, you know, you ain't really going to outcoach too many people. Um, you know, I, I, so I, I say all that to say it, it is why these guys are hesitant to jump. Like, let's be clear. If Kevin Ollie wanted to be an NBA coach right now, he could be. If Jay Wright wanted to be an NBA coach right now, he could be. Um, if John Calipari, Tom Izzo, Bill Self wanted to be an NBA coach right now, they all could be. They have passed on opportunities because they only want the type of opportunity that Billy Donovan got, that Fred Hoiberg got. You know, and I know Fred, uh, they weren't in successful this year in Chicago. A lot of that had to do with injuries. But, um, you know, in, in, in theory, he inherited a situation that was ready to win. And so the only thing that's going to keep these guys out of the NBA is whether or not they can get the type of job that makes it reasonable to make that jump. Because most of the men who would be considered for an NBA job, they win at the highest level of college basketball, right? Now, Jay Wright wins 30 games a year. Kevin Ollie has a national championship. Well, to go from doing that, winning almost without exception, building your own roster, and then winning with it every year, to go from doing that to losing 55 games a season is miserable. Nobody enjoys that. Like, I remember when Brad first got the Celtics job, he came through because the Celtics were playing the Grizzlies, and I, I went and spent some time with him, and um, he was miserable. Like, he had already, like, this was halfway through his, like, it might have been, like, his first month on the job, first two months of the season. He'd already lost more games as Boston's head coach than he ever lost at Butler, ever, all, all the years at Butler. And he was like, I'm not, that's the thing I haven't gotten used to, is, like, I don't, like this losing just over and over and over again. Now he's obviously turned it into something with the help of our front office, but still that can be miserable. So you're not going to see any of these big name, high, highly successful college coaches jump to bad jobs. Um, so then the question becomes, can they get the good jobs? And for Calipari specifically, like he wants everything. He wants a, a place where you can win now. He wants a place where he's got control over the roster and personnel decisions, and he wants probably, as you point out in the column, like eight or nine, ten million dollars because he's getting paid that at Kentucky. So, like, is anybody ever going to give him all of that? I think it would have to be a, a, an owner who's incredibly short-sighted, like the owner in Sacramento. <laughs> you know, like, I, like, wh why would you give? You know, almost nobody has that kind of control. I guess Doc does in L.A. and and uh, Van Gundy does in Detroit, but almost nobody has total control anymore. And yet, unless you're willing to do that, you probably aren't luring a John Calipari away from, from college basketball. So um, that'll be what's interesting to find out. Like, can the college guys get the great jobs? When do the great jobs open, and can the college, gobs get, college guys get them? Because if not, um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to, to make that move. Um, Kevin Ali, I think, is, is, is the possible one exception, and here's why. Um, you know, what, what, where's UConn going to be in a couple years? Like there's, yeah. right, like oh, if suddenly, you know, who knows where Big 12 expansion's going, but like if somehow Memphis and Cincinnati end up in the Big 12 and suddenly Connecticut is left in the American, which is like a million miles away from where they were in the Big East several years ago, but suddenly you got UConn in the American and the next best basketball program in there is Temple or SMU? In my, in my, this is a guess on my, on my behalf, but if that happens, we really don't need to go down this expansion rabbit hole right now. But if that happens, I gotta believe that UConn tries to go basketball only back to the Big East because it would make the most sense for UConn. Whether it could do that or not, I don't know. Right. But I just can't. UConn's too good of a program 
for me to see them settling. But regardless, I think no matter what happens there, I, I think the point you're making here is the right one. And, and Ollie will uh, have opportunities and certainly uh, practical windows to take an NBA job because the, the future with UConn in terms of his conference affiliation does seem up in the air. Um, and we'll see what happens. Big 12, I don't Right. I don't think anybody, I don't even think the Big 12 presidents at this point know what's going to happen. But um, that's the one where Kevin Ollie could look up and the world in which he's been living could change around him. Um, you know, like even right now, you know, UConn fans aren't happy about being in the this version of the American. Like they were in the, UConn was in the Big East with Syracuse and Pitt and, uh, you know, I don't have to name all the Big East schools, but like they were playing in like you know, what was widely considered at a time to be the best basketball league in the country. And now um, they're playing with Memphis and Cincinnati and SMU and Temple, which is which is still fine. Certainly not as good, nowhere close, but it's it's fine. But if you look up and suddenly Memphis and Cincinnati are gone, like then what? You know, you're, you're in a league with Houston and SMU and Temple. Like those are the best, next best programs. Like that could really um, make a, a – a coach with options consider his options, and so that would be something to keep an eye on. Uh, if I were a UConn fan, like what, what, where's UConn going to be in three years, and will that have an impact on what Kevin Ollie um, is doing, either coaching at Connecticut, somewhere else, um, or, or, or back in the NBA? Because you know, uh, not to get into a hot seat conversation, but and I think UCLA is going to be good this year. But if UCLA were bad. Um, they might make a coaching change. Like the fans, hell, they're already flying banners over the campus wanting to make a coaching change. So if UCLA uh, falls on its face this year, th- that job could open. And where's Kevin Ollie from? Los Angeles. Angeles. Yeah, so like I, I, I'm, I'm not putting him there. I'm just saying that I wouldn't be surprised if UCLA looked that direction. And given that he is from L.A., he'd probably have to take a, a, a look at that. Let's switch gears a little bit, touch on a couple of – uh, interesting notes from the past week. One, you reported yesterday, CBSSports.com. Ed Cooley, the Providence coach, had to have back surgery. Going to be okay for the season, but uh, that's not ideal, right? Back surgery it's sounds not, like it hurts. It's not ideal. I mean, Providence hasn't even put out a release on it yet. But, yeah, he had been dealing with uh, – I, I saw Cooley on the road, actually, in July, and he was complaining about back problems there and, and said he was hoping he did not have to need surgery. But uh, herniated disc, apparently his back was just in – he was in a lot of pain, and Cooley uh, lost more than 100 pounds three years ago. I mean, he really had a complete uh, makeover in terms of his physical and health appearance and health, which has been great for him. And he's, he's something of a fitness freak now, which is fantastic. But um, I don't know if uh, if his if his love for fitness has uh, led to him needing to have that back surgery with a herniated disc. I'm not sure, but he did tell me that he should be good to go and on the sidelines in time for the start of the season. But the fact is, he's going to be largely out of commission for the next six weeks, which does have something of an impact just because preseason will be getting going. Players are going to be on campus uh, at Providence soon. And then, you know, now college programs, they are allowed to uh, start practicing 40 days out from their first game. So Cooley will not be uh, in full capacity in time for that, but he should be good to go for the start of the season, and Providence will obviously start anew. There's something of a mystery next season because they lose a top five pick in Chris Dunn, and they lose a fellow first-round draft pick in Ben Bentel, who was arguably the breakout player of the year last year. So uh, some mystery heading into the season for Providence. And uh, another interesting note, and this was actually reported um, 
uh, last month, but it became official this week, and that's that Penn State is moving its home game in the Big Ten this season against Michigan State uh, to the Palestra in Philly, which is just awesome on all accounts because uh, I, I don't know. I'll, make, I'll keep it simple. Like the more basketball, college basketball games we have in that building, the better, right? Yeah. I okay. So, have you ever been yeah. there? Oh yeah, I, I went there and I wrote a whole thing on it. I went there in 2012. Actually, you know, the night I went there. I apologize. I remember that now. No, it's all good. No worries. Um, but the night I went there was like the absolute apex peak of Lin Sanity at, at with the Knicks. He did something that night that was like the night I went to the Palestra because I remember like going there, loving it, writing something, and the world was absolutely on fire about Jeremy Lin on the Knicks. So whatever his best game was, it happened that exact same night. But it's an awesome venue. I give credit to Pat Chambers for giving up a home game to go to Philly. Now, some people are saying, and it's 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 a rightful uh, counter argument. The game is on January seventh. Penn State students aren't even in session. Right, the building would have five thousand people in it. That's totally fine. But it is a three-hour road trip to a venue most of the players have never played in to play against Michigan State. It's still awesome. A lot of coaches would never give up a home game. Period. Uh, but Chambers is from the greater Philly area. He's got a lot of players from Philly on the team. And by the way, it makes natural recruiting sense to play a game in that building. He should try and do it every year if he can, to be honest. It'll be really cool. Um, depending on how the schedule breaks, if, if Michigan State's a top-five team, that might even be one I try and get to. We'll see uh, at that point in time where, where everything is. But, hey, dude, I'm all for it. A Big Ten game in Philadelphia, Michigan State, Penn State, it's, it's, uh, it's really cool without necessarily being gimmicky. I... Um... I'm with you. Like, I don't know the logistics of everything, but it seems smart to try to play there every year. If for no other reason, like, A, it's cool, but B, um, it, it can't hurt in recruiting. Like, you know, if, if, you, if you're Penn State, you've got to be able to recruit Philly. Like, playing a game in Philly probably isn't the worst thing in the world. And then, um, like, do it during Christmas break. Like, to me, that makes perfect sense. The kids aren't on campus anyway, so it's not like you're, you're uh, taking a game away from your students because your students probably aren't going to be there no matter what. So... Uh, I'm down. Uh, I think it's a, it's a great idea and something that if it can be executed uh, every year, uh, I'd be in favor of that. I've never been to the Palestra. It's the one building I've never been to that I like. I wish I need to get to. I've just never Actually, been. That's the only one you have left. I think so. On your list, really? Yeah. I mean, I've been. Wow. I've been basically every the pit. I've never been to the pit. I, I don't know if this would be on your list, but to me, it's one that every college basketball writer should get to, and that's Rose Hill at Fordham. Have you ever been there? No. See, that one, uh, listen, from a logistics standpoint, uh, Rose Hill, it, listen, it's the oldest continually active gym in the country, um, but it's it's bare bones, but it's really cool. I mean, it's it's known for being the final high school game of uh, Lou Alcindor's career and hmm. all this stuff, and they... Like it's listen, it it definitely um, it's not you know it's not decked out to the nines with all this modern stuff, but from a historical standpoint, it's similar to Palestra. I would say you, you should get there, but yeah, your list is much smaller than mine. I well, what what are, what are the ones that you think are are must for college basketball? For, if you can do it, I always preface the conversation by if yeah. you, if you can do it. Um, Cameron, obviously, we I've been there. You've been there, right? I have not, but I my very much my intention is to go there this year. Yeah, uh, I've been to Cameron many times. Um, Allen Fieldhouse, I've been to many times. You've been there. 
in there. I would say while it's it might not jump to people's minds immediately because it's so different and it is kind of cool, I would say the Carrier Dome would make the list if you were making like a top 15 just because there's nothing else like it. I've been to the Carrier Dome multiple times. Uh, I've never been to, but I would put that on there. I've been to Poly, been to Poly Pavilion. Poly would make it. Poly is cool. Uh, it's kind of it's right there on the campus. It's it's definitely a it's definitely a, a get to. Uh, I, I, I'll tell you this: the fir- the first time I went to Poly, uh, whenever it was, wait, like probably two thousand six, seven, eight, somewhere in there. Um, you go, you you go, and it's like, I mean, you're like, I, I grew up a college basketball fan, like Poly Pavilion, right? And I couldn't wait to get there, walk in the building, total dump. Yeah. I mean, it was a dump. I was, I'd never been more like, what in the world is going on here? And uh, obviously, they have renovated it, and so now it's it's great. But that was that was the one that when I first walked in the building, that was so different than what I envisioned. Like it just, um, I was like, Ugh, this is not, this is not. I sh-. the idea I had a Poly Pavilion much better than actual Poly Pavilion. But subsequent to that, they've done the uh, renovation and and now it's it's uh, beautiful. I've been to, you know, Assembly Hall, Indiana's great. I've been there. Uh, I've been to Hinkle, yes. Um, I think. You know what's cool? I've never been to, and mm-hmm. I hope I would get a chance to go in the next five years or so. The program just got to get better. Uh, Minnesota's farm seems, seems now, cool. I mean, it's different. Yeah. It's like Minnesota and Vanderbilt have I, two venues, unlike anything else. In right. The I've been to Vanderbilt, never been to Minnesota. Uh, you know what's cool? The, the kennel is great. I've never been there. That's definitely that would that would actually make my like top five list of, of places I want to get to soonish, just because it seems. And that's and by the way, that's a really relatively i mean that was built in what oh two maybe oh three it's not that old no so it's 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 really it's really good um been a rup of course been to dean dome of course um is dean dome but would, would the dean dome in your opinion make a top 10 no it, it seems was, it seems it's also I, huge right it's huge. I mean, they're, they're, like the campus is – Chapel Hill is awesome. The campus is awesome. I've actually been to the campus. I've never been inside of the Dean And when you walk inside and you look up and there's, you know, there's Jordan. You know, there's Worthy. Like that's kind of cool. You see the banners. You see the jerseys. Uh, the numbers retired. But in terms of the building, it's just a big building. You know, like honestly, I feel uh, uh, the same way about the Dean Dome that I feel about Rupp. Like when you – it's just a big building. Like there's nothing that – awesome about it i mean like the rup is awesome in the sense that you're going to be watching one of the best teams in the country and it's going to yeah it's going to be jam always packed yeah almost like the crowd makes the building sure but like there's nothing that like i wouldn't say rup is is like top five you got to see it or or even cameron is top like cameron and to me it's cameron indoor and allen fieldhouse those are great um i i really think indiana's terrific um when it's when it's rocking like it's really 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 good uh, because it's so steep, I don't know if that shows up on television. It I, it, I don't. It, I don't think it does show up on TV. It is. It goes. The, the, you get up there, man. If you're yeah. at the top, yeah. it's steep. It's really steep. Um, so that's interesting. I don't know. Like, what are the other great got, ones? Oh, here's a couple more that come to mind. Uh-huh. Well, they are renovating the O Dome, so we got a. That's an automatic top. Three, <laughs> been, right? been to been to the O Dome many times. Someone goes into the O Dome and wins. I've and, been trying uh, to tell you that for years. You know, there are definitely fans right now in Wichita that are screaming that we haven't mentioned their spot. Yet. I've been I there. Been there, but I, I've heard the Roundhouse gets just insane. It's great. I've been there multiple times. It's great. So that yeah. would probably make a top 15 list or so. I don't know what else we're missing. I'm sure there might be one or two good ones. But like, like for example, you w- I wouldn't put uh, – and I don't know if you've been to Gample. Have you been to Gample? Never. Okay, so Gample is 
like, you know, when it's 17 degrees outside on a January Saturday night and Gample is just so hot and rocking, it's a really cool environment and the space itself isn't that huge. So like for big games, and I've been in there for at least five or six, like truly like big games, it is an awesome and loud environment. And it's right there, smack dab in the middle of the campus of UConn, which is in the middle of nowhere. You know what? I, I might have been there. I can't remember. I've been, I, I think I've only been to one home UConn game. I can't remember. Whether, I, I mean, it was obviously one of them. It was, it was the game where Dewan Blair flipped Hashim to beat. Do you remember that game? What? Remember he flipped no. he fl- I think that was right. I think Dewan Blair flipped Hashim to beat. Okay. F- flipped him over. It felt like that happened. I feel like Dewan Blair was strong enough to flip Hashim to beat. Yeah, I th- I feel like that happened and I was there. So wherever that game was, as long as that did happen, somebody can YouTube it. As long as that did happen, uh wherever it was, I was there, Hartford or Stores. Yeah, that's the one thing about UConn is they they kind of split both. Uh, for me, I prefer to drive to Hartford because it's just easier and closer and all that. But the Hartford Arena just doesn't really have much juice to it. Stores is better, but I wouldn't put stores in like a top 15 overall. But uh, yeah, man, fun little impromptu conversation. You know, the other thing is like there are probably 15 to 20 really, really like uh, VCU spot is apparently incredible. I've never seen a VCU home game. Uh, I promise we'll wait. I will get there eventually and I've, soon. I've been to VCU. I've never been to a game at VCU. Yeah, but I'm sure I'm sure there are just like that's one thing I actually really love about college basketball, uh, maybe romanticizing a little bit. But even like there are probably 10 to 15 gyms at mid-low major schools that probably are just really, really cool. And on game day have this fantastic feel, but they obviously don't get the pub because those games aren't ever really on. Oh, you, you, know what, you know what else is good? Pitt. I've never been to Pitt. Yeah, that's actually had a pretty good reputation from day one. I remember that, that being a huge thing right after. That's, and that's similar. It's, it's timelines. It's almost been open as long as the kennel um, i think it opened the year after ben left there i think jamie opened the building because I, yeah. I don't i don't think ben ever co- ben Hallen ever coached there but what, what was interesting about it is because when you're in the building i like i don't know if you've watched on television you can probably close your eyes and see this it looks like there's um like luxury boxes right okay or something there right and yet the student section is unbelievable there. Like they're, they're terrific. And so I was talking uh, to somebody connected to the pit program and I was like, uh, dude, the, like after the game, I was like, the student section is unbelievable, but that doesn't show up on television. Like, why would you not have put the student section behind the benches so that it shows up on television? Cause it really is an awesome scene. And they said, because when the building was built, there was no student section. Nobody came to pit, pit like pit basketball did when they were designing it. Like pit wasn't th- it wasn't this. Like Ben was just getting it going, so they were concerned about putting students uh, on you know in the in view of television cameras because they they thought it would look terrible. So so like the building was designed again, assuming that the what the man told me wasn't a lie. The building was designed to cover up for a poor student section. And yet they ended up having a great student section that doesn't get shown on television that much. I would say in that vein, the building isn't anything special. But in regard to the student section seating, I think Michigan State probably has top five in the country. Because they can wrap around the court. And there are so few venues that actually allow that to happen. If I was a program, like if I was a coach and I took over a program, and I would fight as hard as I could because a lot of these schools, you're – you're fighting with boosters and donors, and they want to be right there on the floor, and I get it. But 
the more that you can create that environment as close to the floor as possible, I think it actually does give you a real strong competitive advantage. It's great on television. It boosts the overall home profile of your program. So like what ISO has going there is absolutely perfect. If I were Michigan State, I would never change the setup of the seating there overall. I've been to Michigan State, coldest I've ever been in my life because when I walked out of the – it was like January game – and like you know, you write a column, you get out of there pretty late. So like, there's nobody really there to tell me where to go. I walk out the doors to go to the media lot, and you're supposed to go right to go to the media lot. I went left, which means I have to walk all the way around the building. It's like it's like negative a million degrees. Like that's when I realized the difference between like oh I'm kind of I'm I'm pretty cold to oh my god this hurts. Like I'm in pain. Like this, I'm not just cold. Picturing I'm, you shuffling in the dark. <laughs> I, I'm actually, I'm actually hurting. Like my hands and I, my hands are hurting right now. It was so cold. Um, you know what else is great? Kansas State when it's really going. I've heard Kansas State is great when it's really going. Uh, I've never been. Um, what about what about um, South Carolina? Never been to South Carolina. But I don't even South, South Carolina would make like the top thirty. No, not unless not unless you know who came back. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Shout out to Devin Downey. I think that's a perfect thing, though. <laughs> yeah, I, Shout out to all the fans of every program we didn't mention. We're going to be so like, why uh, didn't you mention this school? Why, <laughs> why didn't you mention us? Okay, uh, we could mention all 351. I, really I, I apologize for setting myself up for a Devin Downey, but I had to. Felt like I felt it felt necessary. Remember, you can subscribe to the Uncolic Basketball Podcast over on iTunes. It's the best way to get the latest episodes as quickly as possible. So please do that if you made it all the way through this. Bless your heart. We appreciate it. And we're going to talk to you again next week. Till then, take care. <laughs>